back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find more than a hundred of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. I'm taking a little time off for the holidays and to prepare new interviews for release in January 2023. In the meantime, this week's episode is a replay of one of my favorite interviews from a few years ago with Matt M. I believe you'll enjoy listening to it again, or for the first time, if you missed its original release in 2021. In putting together this show, I've tried to include a variety of sober alcoholics, men and women, young and old, short and long-term sobriety. My guest today, Matt M., is my first millennial guest, whose five years of sobriety at age 31 demonstrates AA's effectiveness at reaching across the generations of alcoholics to provide the hope of a better future for us all. I met Matt when he first got sober. He attended our men's meeting on a weekly basis, but after a while, I stopped seeing him. Curious as to where he was, I learned from some men who knew him that, although he was still sober, he hadn't been attending meetings regularly as he had in the beginning. When I next saw him, I asked him about that hiatus, and he told me of the distractions to his program. You know, jobs, relationships, the kind of things that take people out every day. Fortunately, he recommitted to AA, redoubled his work in the program, and ultimately picked up a sponsee. Most importantly, he didn't drink. As you listen to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews, take note of the progressive nature of Matt's disease and the choices he faced along the way. Should he use the court-mandated daily breathalyzer in the fear of going to prison as the reason to stay dry? Or should he embrace spiritually-oriented sobriety based upon the proven program of action and fellowship? Matt's experience speaks to both, but the way he lives his life today demonstrates his commitment to his AA program over any easier, softer solution. I invite you to share the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with any boomer, millennial, or any Gen X, Y, or Z alcoholic you know. I believe Matt's perspective will offer some good orderly direction and a lot to be grateful for. So, welcome to my AA brother, Matt M. Matt, alcoholic. Hi, Matt. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, as I've been interviewing people for this show over the last month and a half, a lot of the people have had serious double-digit sobriety. You've seen people with over 40, several over 30, and so forth. But part of my aim in doing this particular podcast was to make sure that all different age groups and all different lengths of sobriety were represented. Now, you've been sober five years? Today, yeah. Five years today. Yeah. Well, happy birthday, brother. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's amazing. Yeah. So you got sober on March 4th. 2016. 2016. You know what's crazy about that? The woman who I interviewed this morning, Diana L., she's 10 years tomorrow. So in one day, I'm I'm interviewing people who are either on their birthday or one day away from their birthday, which is very, very cool. Yeah, that's special. So you're a relatively young man, too, aren't you? Yeah, just turned 31 on January 12th. So wow, 26 should have been in the rooms earlier, but Mm -hmm. you know, it took what it took. Yeah, it usually does, doesn't it? I didn't get sober until I was almost 31, but I'm glad I did when I did. So what was going on in your early life that kind of led you down the road towards alcoholism? So we started at a very, very young age. Um, I was rolling around with a couple of friends that they started drinking in fifth grade. So about 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And kind of with my background, I was like, I'm going to be the good Christian boy. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not for me. I'll let them do it on their own time mm-hmm. and I just won't involve myself. And then around that same time, my brother had a giant cell tumor oh. in his left knee and we thought originally it was cancer. Um, so when I was 11 years old, that was basically the first time, you know, going through something difficult. Yeah. And then that kind of opened up 
the floodgates. And then, you know, luckily he was okay. They, they replaced his knee with cement and, uh-huh. and metal rods. But it was just like my brother uh-huh. was more like a father figure. He, he did, you know, everything for me from coaching me in high school, helping me work out, you know, every single thing. Like he sacrificed so much for me. So your brother was how much older than you? He's eight years older. Is he your only brother? Well, yes, only brother. And then my sister is four years older. That's almost exactly like uh, like me. My, my, my older brother is eight years older and my older sister is four years older. You know, the thing is, I never knew my brother growing up, though, because he he was always being abused and verbally and physically by my dad. So he was he used to hide out a lot. So I never really saw him very much as a little kid. And by the time I was old enough to interact with him, he was already on his way to Vietnam. So I think it's really cool that you had a brother that you could get to know. Yeah. And he basically went through the same thing. You know, my dad was very, very strict with my brother Mm -hmm. and, you know, going through the progression of the kids. Mm -hmm. My dad got a lot more mellow and kind of relaxed because he knew it's not the way to be a parent, but it's also what he was taught through his dad. And we'll... Yeah. Well, that's the legacy that, that comes forth. It was that way for me, too. By the time my parents... Yeah. By the time my parents got to me, things were not quite as acute as they were for my older brother and my sister. In fact, I used to get away with a lot of things, uh, being the third kid, that they never got away with. So there's something about what you said at time or the just the experience mellows them out somewhat. Yeah, and definitely the the third child, they always get it so much easier. Well, yeah, in a lot of ways, but but then they also sometimes become uh, lost and don't don't have much direction. I, I guess it depends which psychologist you listen to on that one. So, was there a history of alcoholism in your family going back into the generations at all? No, you know, I I only know of my uncle. So, on my mom's side, her brother, mm-hmm. he's been in and out of rehabs. You know, the rooms. You know, I'm pretty sure he was homeless for a while wow. out in California. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, he's got it together. I, I don't know exactly how many years or how long he has, but I know. It's quite a while, and he got married, and you know, basically his life is is back together. Wow. But other than that, everyone else in in our family was able to drink in moderation, which is something I never could do. Huh? Isn't it funny how we learn how to be alcoholics from our parents, but we don't learn how to be moderate drinkers from them? <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I remember my dad. His his drink was always a uh, Grey Goose Martini straight up with two olives. And he would always say he's going to have one or two. One is, you know, he's good. Two, it's party time. And I'd always remember, why the heck do you want to do that? Why would you limit yourself to two? Mm-hmm. And I just, I've always had that thought process of, you know, I'm not going to limit myself. And eventually it got to the point where it, it was over the top. And, you know, I would go to restaurants and do you, do you remember those fishbowl drinks oh, yeah. where it's like for two people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would get drinks like that for myself. That's for yourself, huh? And, and the, you know, the waitress or whoever it was, they were like, are you sure? It's, you know, it's just for, for you. I was like, yep, <laughs> it's just for me. So it was never moderation for me. Yeah. You can really get wasted on those big drinks, especially the ones that they pour all sorts of alcohol into. Yeah. And all the sugar too. Yeah. You mentioned your uncle. Did he get sober in AA or did he just get sober on? On his own I would say AA Good. Um, you know I had a relationship with him when I was younger but I actually haven't kept in, in contact with him I've actually never paid much attention to that but that's something I need to do and just you know kind of check in with him and see how he's doing and how his program's going yeah yeah so your dad was a regular normal drinker and how about your mom? You mentioned her brother, but how about your mom? Did she drink at all or was she also a moderate? She did. She was moderate. You know, they're basically the same one or two drinks and that's all they needed. And at that point they could stop. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, that was never the case for me yeah. like ever. So you mentioned your brother and the problem that he had with his knee earlier and how 
drinking was associated with that. Was that because of the stress or the, the trauma of that situation for you that made you drink? Or what was the connection between what happened to him and, and your starting drinking? I think it was just the fear, uh-huh. you know, fear of death and, and losing someone that you know, was very impactful in my life. Mm -hmm. And being at such a young age, you don't really know how to, you know, you don't know how to handle it. You don't know how to process it. Basically, you haven't gone through enough life experience to, to be able to make sense of it. Yeah. And then also in sixth grade, you know, my, my father had an affair. And before that, I was, you know, straight A's, maybe one B, right. um, you know, perfect grades, doing well in school, doing well in sports, had everything going for me. And then this was like Christmas time in, you know, the fall of sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And then after that, in the spring semester, that's when we started smoking pot. And eventually I, you know, that next semester, straight C's and D's. Hmm. And that's basically when the drinking took off and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the drug and, you know, assortments yeah. took place. Can you remember what you were thinking at the time that was going on, the situation at home, and then what happened with regard to you starting drinking and smoking pot? Yeah, I just remember, you know, my mom found out and a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming. Uh, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. You know, I, I was 12 years old and, you know, I didn't know how big the situation was. Yeah. And I just remember, you know, my dad leaving and going to his parents' house, which was mm-hmm. a mile down the street. So they were super close. Yeah. And he stayed there for a while. So I was in my, my father's closet picking up all of his stuff with my sister. You know, she's crying and she was 16 at the time so she knew what was going on and i'm just like i guess he made a mistake i don't know like what's going on and just Mm. not knowing how to handle the situation Mm. and then eventually he sat me down at his office and basically confessed and and told me what he did and you know he was crying i was crying and Mm. it was just tough to see because he had everything going for him. He, he was a successful doctor that mm-hmm. got into the business side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He sold his company uh, mid-90s, so 95, 96. Mm-hmm. was very successful, and basically it was his fall from grace. Yeah, yeah. You said he eventually sat down with you. Were you still in sixth grade at the time, or was this later? I would say it was within a couple of days, yeah. Really? Okay. So yeah. within a few days of all this blowing up, you found out what had happened and his contrition or whatever it was about the situation. Did that help any or were you still pretty much uh, confused by it or hurt by it? What were the feelings around that? A lot of it was anger and that basically fueled my drinking habits. Really? All through high school early 20s mid 20s i was an angry person Mm. which was good for sports i mean don't get me wrong (laughs) i was a great football player yeah but you know it's not good when everyone sees you starting fights Mm. breaking stuff yeah basically being an absolutely insane person my ex-girlfriend the most recent one actually called me the hulk the hulk because i used to smash stuff when i was intoxicated and you know breaking chairs paintings all that type of stuff, and uh-huh. it, it, it wasn't good. Yeah. So when you weren't drinking, were you acting out with angry behavior, or was it just when you were drunk? I would say both. I would say whenever the alcohol came in, it was like like fuel to the fire. Mm. It, it came out, and I couldn't stop the anger. And mm-hmm. relationship after relationship went down, friends went down. Like, mm. basically, towards the end, end of my drinking, I was essentially by myself. Yeah, yeah. Anger will do that. It'll isolate very quickly. Were you an angry kid before all this with, happened with your parents? Do you remember being angry before all of that? Or, or would you say that that anger and what you were experiencing was an outcome of that traumatic experience? It was definitely an outcome of that experience. I was such an easygoing kid before that. Really? Yeah. That's a profound change, isn't it? Yeah. Especially within, you know, the, the difference between a semester is only a couple of weeks around Christmas. And, right. you know, that dramatic change from 
A's and, you know, barely a B to C's and D's and, and even F's. Mm. Sometimes it doesn't make much sense to ask this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Did you, as you were angry and acting out in angry ways, were you aware of what you were doing? Or what did you tell yourself as you were acting out angrily, breaking stuff? And, and, and what was going through your mind during those episodes? I think it was always just, there was no thought. It was always just acting out and not caring about the repercussions and mm-hmm. not caring about anyone else. I always felt like the victim and, you know, God was out to get me. Uh-huh. And I think that's why I struggled so much is because I didn't have a real relationship with God. I mean, I went to pretty incredible schools where church was taught and, mm-hmm. you know, we would go to chapel and mass and, and all that good stuff. But I never had that relationship with God. And, mm-hmm. you know, anytime someone talked about the Bible or or Sunday school, it just, it rubbed me the wrong way. It just, it was, a you know, something I didn't want to get into. And there's just no chance of having that relationship with God until I got into sobriety. Yeah. I don't think that's uncommon. Did you have any sort of relationship before all these anger issues? Or when you were a kid growing up, did you have a, any sort of sense of God's presence in your life? I mean, I, I did, but it was never anything special. It was just, you know, very superficial mm-hmm. and, and really throughout my life before sobriety, you know, it was just like foxhole prayers. Like, you know, God, just give me all this relationship yeah. and I'll become a priest and, and preach your word and all uh-huh. that stuff. But it was never a relationship. It was like, what have you done for me lately yeah. type thing. Were you aware of how you were feeling about God as you were feeling that way? Or was that kind of thoughts that were in the background or deeper down? I think deeper down. I, I never really cared to to have a relationship with God at that age. I, I knew and believed in God, but it was just never anything more than that. I had very much the same sort of relationship myself. I, I said, I believed, I thought I believed, but when it came right on down to it, it wasn't until I got into AA that I had the spiritual awakening that I had been needing my whole life. And thank God we get it at last. But can you imagine what it would have been like growing up with the same belief in God that we have now, then? I mean, I mean, I know my life would have been way different, but all roads we're on all lead to the same place. And that's where we are. That's where we are now. So you were an angry dude. You were uh, fighting. Was this, this was in high school and after? Yeah. Um, basically, you know, if, if someone looked at me the wrong way or if someone kind of, you know, screwed me over, my motto was, you know, if if you screw me over, I'm going to screw you over twice as yeah. hard. Yeah. So it, it basically gave me an excuse to, you know, go crazy and, and let my anger out in a very, very unhealthy way. And then the alcohol on top was, you know, just even more fuel on the fire. Yeah. What, what kind of consequences did all that cause? A lot. Um, there was one night we were at a party and I guess their parents were out of town and they checked the refrigerator with all the beer and had it lined up perfectly so they would know if something was touched or, you know, someone took it and me being cocky and arrogant like Uh I was, I, you know, took a beer and, and they found out and, Eventually, one guy confronted me face mm-hmm. on, and then someone came up behind me and punched me in the back of the head. I don't know on on my cheek because they broke oh, it, no. and uh, kind of right by the eye uh-huh. socket. And I hit my head on the pool table and had to go to the emergency room, and it was just embarrassing. Like my friend's girlfriend had to drive me home, mm-hmm. blood everywhere, and I tried to throw a brick through the window on the way out. Wow. It was just a mess. Wow. And that was like one of the big repercussions and consequences. And there's many more in, you know, in high school. Yeah. yeah. So what did that do to your relationship with your friends or was it just all in stride? I think it turned into something we could laugh about, but it was just like the next weekend when I saw them, they're like, what were you doing? Like, what were you thinking? Uh And it's like we had beer and all the stuff we brought on our own, but it's like, for some reason, I decided to be a little instigator and, you know, start trouble. Hmm. So how long did this go on? You were partying all the time. Uh, Did you go on from high school to college or anything like that afterward? I did. So it wasn't very long. It was a a semester at Texas Tech Uh right after high school. And then December 12th, 
my father had a heart attack and, you know, eventually I had to come back and he was on life support. Oh my gosh. And he, um, you know, we had to take him off life support and, uh, you know, he died. Sorry to hear that. That year. That must have been tough. Yeah. And, and he was, he was healthy. We had a, a gym at our house and he would work out every day, play golf. He, I mean, he was always active, ate healthy, and it was just a heart abnormality and it just stopped. Mm. How did the rest of the family, uh, how did they react and do with all that? No one handled it well. It's It was just such a shock. And, yeah. you know, luckily for me, I wasn't there. Uh-huh. I wasn't at the house. Right. I remember my brother calling me when I was in Lubbock. I think I was playing like online poker or uh-huh. something. <laughs> and I just remember being like, there, there's no way this is happening right now. Yeah. And, you know, it was my mom, my sister and my brother. And I guess they just finished dinner and, you know, they found him in his bathroom. And oh. I just I don't think there's any way I would have been able to see that and handle it without just, you know, losing my mm. mind. I guess it was bad enough as it was. What kind of response did you have whenever that sank in? It was tough. For me, anytime something big and kind of devastating mm-hmm. happened, my reaction was to run away. Mm-hmm. And that that's like a common theme throughout my drinking career. I remember when we were at the hospital and the doctor told us that, you know, he's he suffered so much damage and you know, he's essentially brain dead and there's no way he's going to come back. The first thing I did was I just, I, you know, started crying Mm -hmm. and I just had to get out and I got in my car and I drove west. I drove to, I think, Columbus or, you know, whatever's an hour Mm -hmm. west of Mm -hmm. Houston. And I got, I got beer on the way out and just, just drove. Mm -hmm. So I, I just ran away. Mm -hmm. And got the beer to... To numb myself. I didn't want to have to deal with that. And yeah. I, I didn't know how to deal with it any other way than just to, to drink. Yeah. Did you stay drunk through the following days? I don't remember, but if I had a guess, I would say, yeah. yeah. There was definitely drinking involved. Mm-hmm. You know, even at his funeral, I took a, a couple of shots before mm-hmm. with with my brother in the car. Mm-hmm. Was your was your brother a drinker as well? He was. Um but I would say he would party, but he would be able to function. He never went over the top, and he was able to manage school and all that stuff. So he, he never had a problem, you know, and, and he went on to be a doctor, too. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I don't see him drink. I don't see him ask for a beer or have beer in the house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he just doesn't have a problem with it. After your father passes did you go back home or did you stay at school what what was the next step yeah so basically that next morning after i got that phone call got on a plane and came back home and essentially it was like i never went to school at texas tech i got a a medical withdrawal and they kind of scrubbed that from my record Mm. and then basically was was there for the family my mom was completely devastated you know as we all Mm -hmm. were and she was in bed basically every day Mm. and it was rough very very rough to deal with you must have felt helpless in that situation then huh yeah because it's like we lost our leader like what do we what do we do now and you know me being 18 i don't i don't really know much about life like i don't know how to handle that how can i help my mom and you know luckily she had such a good support system like her friends Mm -hmm. and relatives nearby that really helped her out and helped her get out of that hole how long did it take for you to to process all of that when did things feel like they were getting back to normal for you after that it it took a while i mean i i went to therapist after therapist and it just none of it like clicked Mm -hmm. none of it made sense i i couldn't figure out how to deal with what my dad did and his Mm -hmm. death and everything around that. There were times where I had to deal with depression, Mm -hmm. you know, early 20s, mid 20s. It it never made sense. And it wasn't until 2016 got sober and it it took me two two years to, to fully complete the steps. And my sponsor is, you know, a mutual friend of ours. And Uh it it wasn't until working step four and five Uh that it clicked. I I joke about it now that 
basically the psychiatrist and the therapist, they, they might as well have been speaking Spanish because I didn't know how to make any uh-huh. sense of it. Uh-huh. And what my sponsor did was break it down to the point where I understood it. And it taught me about empathy. Yeah. And, you know, everything my dad did was learned from his dad. Yeah. And it, at the end of the day, my dad was, he was such an incredible person. Like everything he did was to serve others. Mm-hmm. And I hear stories even to this day about how amazing he was. Mm. I didn't think about that until my sponsor told me. Mm. And there was just so much anger. Like, how could he do this to me? How could God let this happen? And it was never about, you know, what was he going through? Yeah. You know, he made a mistake and yeah, I'm sure his his dad made the same mistake many of times, but that's just what he did because that's what he saw. Yeah. And and the good thing for me is like it brought so much pain mm-hmm. and so much anger that that's going to stop with me. Like that's not going to happen anymore mm-hmm. from me and, you know, my kids like it, it just devastated the family and ripped it apart. Mm. And luckily they, they never got divorced. They, they figured mm-hmm. it out, but it was tough. And I, I want to wish that upon my, my worst enemy. Yeah. That's such a powerful realization that you had about your dad. And it took you a couple of years into AA and being sober to finally get to that point, huh? Yeah. And, and the biggest thing was working step nine. I actually wrote a letter to mm-hmm. him. We had him in a columbarium. Mm-hmm. So I went to the church, got out the letter, and, and I read it. Mm. And I prayed, and I cried, and I, it was the first time I forgave him. Wow. And year after year after year, there was just so much anger. And all it took was my sponsor, you know, helping me through that step mm. and realize that he, he made a mistake, and that's all it was. Yeah. And he did everything he could to provide for us, give us an absolutely incredible life and, you know, it did everything for our family. But, you know, that's that's what it took. And ultimately, I forgave him. Yeah. Well, that's uh, at the time that he sat down with you and told you about it. That was pretty powerful all the way up to the point at which you finally forgave him. It took what it took to get you to that point, didn't it? Yeah. And step five, it, it definitely took a long time. I think I set a, a record for that. It, <laughs> it took many, many weeks. <laughs> because you were resistant to doing step four or had you done four and you're just delaying five? No. So my my sponsor said to be thorough mm-hmm. and I was very, very thorough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it just it took a long, long time to get through. And, you know, I was asked to be thorough and that's what I did. Wow. That's amazing. You're you're a rare breed in AA, Matt, in that doing what your sponsor says to do the first time. There aren't that many guys who do that. I know um, I was really broken by the time I finally got a sponsor after a year being sober. So at that point, I was willing to do anything. But I've sponsored men before and heard about from other men that I sponsor, guys that they are sponsoring, that it takes sometimes two, three, four attempts to have that kind of impact on a sponsee to the extent that they will actually do the work. So I got to hand it to you and to your sponsor for, for moving in that direction when you did. So from the time your dad passed away when you were 18 until you got sober was a period of Eight years? Yeah, eight years. So 2008 to 2016. So what was going on in those years? And how did what was going on guide you into or lead you towards whatever you had to go through to get to AA? So early 20s, not much. Mm -hmm. I was working at a golf course that we were members at, which was Mm -hmm. fun, but it was something to do. Yeah. And tried going back to school. I went to a local community college. Mm -hmm. I did well. Not as as well as I could have, mm-hmm. uh, but then, you know, just it was back and forth between getting classes done and taking time off. You know, eventually I was a, a coach for sixth grade football, which is crazy because that's when I first started drinking. Mm. So I was always looking around like, who's a kid that's going to be drinking <laughs> this early on? <laughs> yeah. Were you drinking while you were coaching, though? No, 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 no. A lot of it was just me floating around and trying to figure out what am I going to do with my Mm -hmm. life and eventually uh, started working as a waiter here in Houston Mm -hmm. 
And then my future boss slash ex-girlfriend came in Mm -hmm. and she was like, do you, you know, do you like working here? Mm -hmm. And I was like, hell no, I don't, I don't want to be a waiter. (laughs) I want to, you know, do something else. And I I hate it. And she offered me a job and was like, come talk to me next week Mm -hmm. and we can, we can figure something out. Mm -hmm. So basically started working for Mm -hmm. her. She was married at the time. Mm And then was kind of going through a divorce with her husband. And then, unfortunately, I got involved mm-hmm. and kind of had, an, I guess you would say, an, you know, I guess an affair on the other side. And eventually she got divorced and mm-hmm. moved in with her. And, you know, we started working, building the business. And eventually, you know, she was a heavy drinker, too. She was. Yeah. And she, you know, we would drink all the time. And. It was bad because it was uh, a company around helping kids. Mm. And so we would have kids in the office and we'd also have beer and champagne and and wine in the fridge where they would go get water. Mm. And I mean, we would be drinking and working like 100 hour weeks and we would probably drink as like the same amount of drinks. Mm. You know, even on the weekends, like driving to work, we would have mimosas at eight in the morning and drink all throughout the day at work. And it was just nonstop. Mm. And eventually, you know, with my situation, I didn't have a degree. Mm-hmm. I was making pretty good mm-hmm. money and, you know, life was, life was good and, and I couldn't leave it. Mm. We would get in fights all the time and it was just a very unhealthy, toxic relationship. Were the fights, did they occur when you were drunk or did they occur all the time? It was only when we Hmm. were drunk. Interesting. Yeah. 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 But it was bad. It was just the same cycle over and over. And really what the therapist that I saw after the relationship, Mm -hmm. the way he described it was it was like a spider web that no matter how hard I tried and how hard I tried to get away, Mm -hmm. I was stuck. And I couldn't get out of it. Yeah. And then eventually we went to New York City for my birthday. Mm-hmm. I had fun and we went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I don't know if you've been there, mm-hmm. but they have a prayer candles where you light a candle and you say a prayer. Mm-hmm. I was so beat down. I tried everything I could and I couldn't get out. And I, I lit the candle and I prayed, God. Get me out of this relationship safely. Hmm. And, you know, a week later, it was like nine o'clock at night. I was I was sleeping. She came up, said something, and it was like God was working through me. Mm-hmm. And I picked up a bag and, and I threw it at her. And, you know, unfortunately, it hit her in the face. But, mm. you know, ultimately, that's what got me out. Hmm. Was she injured or what was the outcome from that? Not Nothing permanent, just, you know, a couple of black eyes. But Mm. I remember going to the bag. And after that, I don't remember me throwing it and it hitting her. It was just like a a blank screen. Kind of like a blackout in a moment of rage. Yeah, it it wasn't good. But, you know, eventually, I think this was about a week later, she orchestrated a... uh, (laughs) Uh, undercover type operation where she told me I was going to turn in my business equipment, like the the phone, the computer, mm-hmm, yeah, keys to the office, mm-hmm. and, and all that type mm-hmm. stuff. And it definitely wasn't because it was 15 U.S. marshals with with guns drawn. Wow! And, and there was a warrant for my arrest. And you talk about just being embarrassed and that demoralization, being arrested. Mm-hmm getting ripped out of the car mm-hmm. in front of like a shopping center mm. with hundreds of people seeing it. It was just, it was horrible. Wow. And I remember at that time when they had me on the ground with my hands behind mm-hmm. my back, I remember looking up to the sky and being like, something's got to change. Wow. What a moment of truth. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. So it took marshals and, and being handcuffed. Did, did you go to jail at that point? I did. So... It was about 10, 9 or 10 in the morning, and then I eventually got bailed out a little bit after midnight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had to go through the court systems, and I was facing 2 to 10 years in, in prison. And I just, I knew I was in a lot of trouble, and 
I, I didn't want to be labeled that the rest of my life. And actually, yeah, I had an exit plan. If it was going to come to it, I was going to uh-huh. go as fast as I could into, um, you know, those, those barriers on an, on an exit like an ramp. Abutment. And I was oh going to, yeah. Wow. But, you know, God knew I was going to do that. And for whatever reason, he showed me mercy. And to this day, I, n- I never faced those two to 10 years in prison. And I got to go free and, you know, had to suffer the consequences. But I never spent any additional time in jail. I just remember that that day walking on a court, I called my mom because she was in, in New mm-hmm. York. And I was like, Mom, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make mm-hmm. it. And I just remember crying my eyes out because throughout that time from getting arrested Mm -hmm. and you know the court Mm -hmm. date i i would basically cry myself to sleep every night and just be like god just just give me a chance give me a chance that you know i can fall to my knees and throw my hands up in the air Mm -hmm. and and you know i can say i did it yeah and and the crazy thing about that is that's happened multiple times Mm. you know i graduated you know college sober Hmm. And that never would have happened before. I graduated with a three eight. I graduated high school with a two yeah. eight. Yeah. And it wasn't because I wasn't smart enough. It was because, you know, the stinking thinking and and the the drinking and all that anger, fear, resentment, all the above. Yeah. And it's like once I got sober and got rid of all that, uh-huh. my my true colors came out, and I was able to walk across that stage with the wow. honors. And that never would have happened if I didn't get sober. Well, congratulations for that. That's a really marvelous demonstration of how getting sober and working a program and staying involved in AA can make a big difference. Big time. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. I'm having a little difficulty with the time frames here. Okay, so you got arrested. Had you stopped drinking yet? Or what? at what point did you actually stop drinking uh, in reference to what you're talking about with getting arrested and, and, and these other things that happened? Yeah, so March 4th, 2016 was when I got arrested. So been sober ever since that day. Wow. Yeah. So that was that was it. At that point, you were done. Yeah. So that had to be a Friday because the next morning we're in my lawyer's office Mm -hmm. on the weekend and it was my mom, my sister and the lawyer. And I remember looking over to my sister and she was like, the court system is going to take a while, but what can he do in in the meantime? Mm. And she was like, can he go to AA meetings? Mm. And that was the first time it clicked. And, you know, I, I was willing, I was beaten down and, in, in more yeah. ways than one, uh-huh. but I, I was willing, you know, I gave it a chance and I just had no other option. And that was the best thing for me because it brought me into the rooms uh-huh. and it brought me closer to God and to be able to build a relationship with God. And it was almost like God was speaking through my sister directly to me to get into the rooms. What a beautiful realization to look at that situation and know that that's what was happening. Uh, Did you realize that at the time or is this just something you've realized kind of looking back? Definitely looking back. But I remember when she said it, it got my attention and it was like, well, maybe there's something to it. Mm -hmm. But I I never really gave it more thought. And it wasn't until sitting in a meeting one day and I just thought about it. I was like, wow, like, what if she never said that? You know, what if I didn't get into the rooms? What if I'm not sober? Like, that was God working through her. It's just incredible. So 
the fact that you were willing to go to AA, how did that and stopping drinking, how did that mitigate that two to 10 years that you were facing? So basically, my ex met with my lawyer because it's kind of a interesting situation. Mm -hmm. The lawyer on my side was friends with the lawyer on her side. (laughs) So kind of a small world, but I think that's also a God thing as well. So she, my ex, met with my Uh lawyer and basically was like, I don't want him to go to jail. Mm. I I want him to have a life, mm-hmm. to be able to finish school, get back on his feet and all that mm-hmm. good stuff. But she was also like, I still want him to suffer the consequences though. Mm. Because if, if nothing changes, then you know it's gonna be the same pattern. I remember that information being relayed to me from my lawyer. I was like, how the hell does that work? Mm. And I remember being like, well, what can we do? Like, can we sue her? Can we, (laughs) can we do X, Y, and Z? And he's like, no, we're just, she has all the power and we're going to let her, we're going to not poke the bear and and go with it. I can tell you exactly where I was standing. I was standing in the backyard and thinking with the the angel on one shoulder and the devil on, you know, one Mm -hmm. shoulder, you know, it was like one, trust God and just, you know, trust that it's all going to work out. And the other side was like, I have her hard drive. I, I know everything that was done the wrong way mm. and um, kind of shady in the business. And it was mm. like, I could destroy her. But then I, I just took a deep breath and I was like, I'm going to I'm going to trust God. Wow. And I did. And eventually everything worked out. It sounds like it did. And that sounds like a real turning point for you. Yeah. It, it forced me to surrender and just, you know, I couldn't do anything other than just let God take control and and whatever happened was going to happen. What's interesting and somewhat ironic about what you're saying is when you said that she wanted you to suffer and so you had to go to AA. Uh, What did you know about AA before you came and and whenever it was that they suggested AA, what kind of conception did you have of what AA must be about? So it's funny. I I basically took what you see in like the movies Uh and and, um, TV shows, but basically thought it was going to be a bunch of kumbaya and, you know, just some crazy uh-huh. stuff. But everyone says the same thing and it's never the case. It's it's normal people that there's just so much fellowship and so many incredible people that actually care about you. Mm-hmm. And it's completely opposite of what I thought it was going to be. And I've had some amazing friendships come from it. And I'm just grateful that I gave it a chance and stuck around long enough to you know, put together some years. So what were your first meetings like? Did you did you feel welcome? Were there certain aspects that attracted you? Were there others that repulsed you? The very first meeting I went to, I was fighting back tears the whole time. Huh. I mean, I, I didn't know a single person there, and it was so awkward, so uncomfortable, but I stuck through it, and I remember there was a guy that stuck with me after because, you know, raised my hand. I was like, it's my first meeting, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he talked to me and um, it must have been like a good 45 minutes to an hour after Mm -hmm. the meeting and basically went through the beginning of the big book. And, you know, he kept saying you're you're screwed um, (laughs) in in a different word. Yeah. And I was terrified. I was like, what does that mean? Like, why? Why are we here then? But, you know, being in sobriety for long enough, I hear that all the time in a different perspective and I know what he means. But I was just in such a bad spot that I didn't know if he was trying to scare me. I didn't know if he was serious. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It was just super uncomfortable. But, you know, I kept coming back and I I did take some time off. But luckily I had my I call them my training wheels. Right. It was a, a breathalyzer that I had to do three times a day oh. for 18 months straight. Wow. And I, I only missed it twice because the adapter broke and they overnighted a, a new one to hmm. me. So to be able to start your car, was it one of those or, or was it one of those that you blow into and it transmits the information? Yeah, I, I got the second one, which uh-huh. was the worst thing ever because... I worked, mm. as you know, and I would have to leave the building and go to my car and do it. And it just, mm. it, it was bad. But 
it was my it was my training wheels. It, it kept me sober for, you know, when I didn't go to meetings and I wasn't going to drink and mm-hmm. and go back to jail. Like there was just no chance I was going to make that mistake. It was a total pain in the butt, but it it worked, you know, and I remember <laughs> it's funny because the judge was like, were you drinking that night? And I was like, well, you know, I, I had drinks earlier, but I was sleeping. And I was like, I don't know. It's like a judgment call. And he gave me that look like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Mm. Like, he was like, we're going to give you this for 18 months and you're going to do it three times a day and do all these classes. And I was so mad that I said that. Mm. But it was good that I did because it kept me sober. It kept you sober. Hmm. So you went to these meetings in the beginning, and you mentioned getting away from them. How long was that hiatus? I would go to meetings three or four times a week, and then I would stop. And then, you know, life was good. I would stop, and life would get bad, and, you know, just get in my head, and then that's when I would come back. So it was very, very cyclical, you know, ups and downs and ups and downs. And I don't think I ever took a lengthy duration off it was more just Uh that cycle of i don't need it i can take a take a Mm -hmm. breather just going back into it full speed a lot of people who do that they go to aa long enough to figure they got it licked they have what they need thank you very much and then they go out and they try that and it doesn't work and they come back and then sooner or later the disease pops up again and says you got it you got it and then they go out again was that kind of what was happening for you no, I mean, I, I think what I went through scared scared me to like the point where there was no no option for for me to do that. Like, oh. if I got another charge, then I don't even know how long I would be going to jail for. But it it would be a very long time, and I was like, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to risk it. And you know, got the sponsor and worked the steps mm-hmm. and. Life has been incredible so far. Yeah, yeah, and I've been watching you uh, as much as I can in the meetings that we go to together, and I've I've seen the change in you. I was curious. And I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try and work it out. So let me ask you: At what point during your initial sobriety, we're talking about from the time you came in till even today? If along the way, the judge had said, everything's over for you now, don't worry about it, you don't have to, no more breathalyzers, no more repercussions, don't worry about it, you're back to, you know, you're back to the good graces of society. At what point would you have stopped going to AA and done that versus being at the point where you said, well, that's okay, I still want to go to AA? Does that make sense? Is that question, you get what I'm asking? Yeah, well, the the meetings were never mandated by the court. They were? No, so it was, I had to do other classes, but uh-huh. I think with the breathalyzer and SOP uh-huh. class, that, that's basically, you know, he was like, that's enough. Hmm. What, yeah, which I thought was kind of weird. Like, you know, they probably should have thrown the meetings in, hmm. but, you know, just going in and things started to work. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't going to give it up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously I went through this, the cycles of good and bad, but I just, I stuck with it. The guy who talked to you in that first meeting, did he become your sponsor or how long did it take you to get a sponsor? He did not, but I actually reconnected with him and it was through Facebook. And I was like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but uh-huh. um, you, you kind of shared your story and, and all that stuff. After a meeting, you know, it must have been three or four years at that time that had passed. And his first question was, are you still sober? I was like, yes, sir. And he was like, do you think what I said had an impact on you? I was like, it sure did. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, my my very first sponsor, um, I actually met in a meeting probably the first 20 or 30 days and oh that's cool we got to step four and i kind of i didn't go back Mm -hmm. out but i didn't work the steps i see and then i i didn't get back into it so that's why i say the um the breathalyzer was my training wheels it it helped keep me sober through that until i found my current sponsor Was that the time when I was seeing you at meetings and asking you whether you had done a fourth step and you hadn't yet done it? 
or did that come later? I'm not sure. Huh, yeah. Because I, I remember early on, I don't know when it was I first met you, but I remember asking you where you were in the steps, and I don't know if you were saying, whether you said you were still working on the fourth step or you were you were getting ready to work on it or whatever. How long did that fourth step take you to do once your sponsor got you going on it? The first time or the second time? Well, the first time, I guess, is when I first noticed. It took me a while, but I mean, I spent probably a couple weeks uh-huh. on it, but then I think I just had so much shame and guilt about everything that I did mm-hmm. that I didn't want to share it. So that's kind of where we dropped off. How long was the drop off between getting that done and finally finishing it and doing a fifth step? It was like two years or around two and a half years that we finished the step. So, I mean, it was well over a year of not working the steps and not having a sponsor. So I went a long time wow. without having a sponsor. Were you still going to meetings at the time? I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say very mm-hmm. many, but I think I relied too heavily on the breathalyzer. I think that was like, I, I guess I thought that's all I needed at the time and that was going to keep me sober because I was working two jobs and taking classes online to finish my degree. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I you know, just don't have time yeah. for, for meetings. Yeah. As you were sitting in those early AA meetings during this period that you're talking about now, what were you hearing that you were resisting from people in that meeting talking about how they stayed sober? What sort of things were you opposed to, to the point at which you were willing to let the breathalyzer keep you sober instead of AA? I think just the, the biggest issue for me was, I guess I had a lot of anxiety. So I was always the last one in mm-hmm. and the first one out. Mm. And I mean, it, it took many years for me to even be able to share. Mm. Like I would always get called on and I just, I would pass and say, you know, mad alcoholic, I'm just going to mm. listen. Yeah. Because I, I was overwhelmed with like, I mean, one, everything I was going through and two, I just, I didn't know how to really talk to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, alcohol was my liquid courage and I couldn't really talk in front of 50 men or 50 women, whatever type meeting it was. That was difficult. Um, I mean, it, it took probably two or three years before I could get over that and, wow. and be able to share in meetings. Well, thank God you kept coming to the meetings because certainly not feeling like you can share is a great reason to not go to meetings. Not that it's valid, but it is a reason that people use from time to time for not staying sober. I went to meetings. I couldn't relate. I didn't feel comfortable sharing, so I went out and got drunk. But you stayed. You you at least stayed connected at that point. What was your turning point then? What uh, Two or three years before you finally turned the corner on that resistance uh, or your reticence to share at meetings? I think finally working the steps and, you know, getting rid of all that shame, fear, resentments, and then also working with a therapist. Hmm. I think I had a lot of bad thinking mm-hmm. patterns mm-hmm. that came from childhood. Yeah. And I got into a therapist that practiced CBT mm-hmm. and, you know, just figuring out how my brain would work and how my thought processes would work. Mm -hmm. And I mean, basically the thing I would do is I would think about something and my mind would automatically go to Mm -hmm. the worst case scenario. So for, for whatever reason, I guess that's the trauma in the past, but Mm -hmm. I would get so anxious from the worst case that would happen. And you know, it, it never came true. Yeah. And it was just my mind playing through, I'm going to say something stupid or I'm going to, you know, fall down in front of everyone, whatever it is. And it never happened. Not once. And just being able to catch myself in the process of thinking that stopping it Mm -hmm. and replacing it with something else. You know, that's not an uncommon frame of mind, though, for alcoholics, that fear that the other shoe is going to drop or that everything that's been going well is going to fall apart. And it's almost like a self-created fear where false events appear real. And so that's where therapy has been important as a part of my sobriety over the years, in addition to treating the clinical depression, 
medically, but there's nothing like being able to talk those things out and then going back to AA or obviously doing them concurrently when you can, but so that you get the perspective of the one-on-one from a good therapist to kind of delve into where your mind is at. And then you go into AA and you're able to take a different perspective into the meeting. Did that happen for you? Yeah. I mean, I all the therapists, they might as well have been speaking Spanish because it, it didn't make any sense. And and really, no one was able to connect to me like my, my sponsor did. Huh. And it, it's really a gift from God that God put my sponsor in my mm-hmm. life because there's so many similar life events that he went through mm-hmm. that he was able to to tell me about. And I mean, he obviously is not a, a therapist, but like, I mean, it's just crazy how, you know, your sponsor can get through to you an alcoholic like no one else. It just it blows my mind. It's probably got a lot of the same issues you have, too, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> We tend to attract to ourselves people who are almost identical. I know that's been my, that's my so experience, true. both with my sponsor and the guys that I sponsor and the men that they sponsor. It seems like everybody's connected to the degree at which we feel like, wow, he's got almost everything that I got going on. So you were sober how long before you formalized that relationship with him? Probably around two years. Wow. Yeah. So by the grace of God, you were able to stay sober during a period of time without a sponsor during which a lot of people don't make it. Yeah, and and the thing is like I am grateful that God took the obsession away from me day one. Like I, I do think about drinking every once in a while, but there's never been an urge uh-huh. to act on it. So it's it, it's manageable even when I didn't go to meetings, but at the same time now I go to meetings because I don't want to, you know, what if, what if that doesn't, you know, keep me sober. So, I mean, AA meetings are kind of my insurance policy, so I don't, I don't go back out. What would the Matt of today, knowing what you know now, say to a guy who was behaving and acting like you did during your first couple of years of sobriety? What would you say to that guy to maybe try and turn around his thinking? Oh, man, that's that is such a great question. Um, I mean, I would probably just ask questions about, you know, where he's at and and Mm -hmm. where he's struggling with. I think I think that was probably the biggest Mm -hmm. thing for me is, you know, the the therapist back in the day were trying to apply a general situation to my Mm -hmm. specific Mm -hmm. situation and it just didn't work. But it, it's it's telling the stories and being able to relate with another alcoholic. Like it's it's mm-hmm. the, the parable of the alcoholic and that story and mm-hmm. the doctors and you know everyone passes by, but the alcoholic jumps right. in the hole with you. That's that's really all it is. And being able to relate to someone on that level, it's it is absolutely incredible. Like I'm fortunate that I, I didn't get a sponsee for a long time, but started working with a guy that was a coworker mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And it's like, I get to give the mm-hmm. gift I was given to him and like working with him, I can see where he's at. And I, I think about myself at a time and it's just like, man, like I am so grateful for my sponsor and yeah. him being so patient and yeah. just sharing his story. And, you know, there was no mm-hmm. judgment about mm-hmm. all the crazy stuff I did. And it's just, it's a gift of the program. It really is. Yeah. I hear the gratitude coming through loud and clear. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I asked that question knowing how resistant we can be until the point at which we're ready. So there may or may not have been anything you could have said to the guy who was acting like you were acting to change his mind. But I guess what it seems to me is your cautionary tale is to get a sponsor right away, start working the program right away. Uh, You'd probably never encourage anybody to, well, skate along for a couple years and don't worry about it and then you'll find a sponsor I can't imagine you giving that kind of advice to anybody. No, definitely take from my mistakes and definitely get a, a sponsor as fast as, as you can. And, and it's got to be someone that um, I, I remember hearing in the rooms very early on that you want to find someone that has already something you want. Yeah. And, and my sponsor is a man. He's an mm-hmm. awesome dude and just 
always happy. Mm-hmm. He's got an awesome family. He's very successful at what he does. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's what I wanted. And that's why I gravitated mm-hmm. towards him. And I was so nervous when I asked him and it's almost like asking a girl out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he was like, yeah, you know, here's my number and let's talk about it and let, let's get working on the steps and we'll, we'll get you there. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. It's amazing how much courage it seems to take for people to ask somebody to be their sponsor. First two guys I asked to be my sponsor said no. And, uh, I really was hurt by that and feeling like, man, nobody wants to sponsor me. How how pathetic must I be? And I was about ready to go out and drink over that. I mean, it was that devastating. And finally, the man who dis- who agreed to be my sponsor, he said yes with a caveat. And the caveat was, let's give it 30 days. And again, I thought I had failed. But, you know, his point was asking someone to sponsor you is like asking somebody to marry you or asking a girl out. If it if it works, it's great. But if it doesn't, it, it's devastating. Whereas the 30-day plan, if after 30 days things are not going well, you can split with the understanding that, oh, we, we, we only gave it 30 days. So we, we did what we said, and now we're going to split. But if it does work, you just go on. And so that I learned from my sponsor over 32 years ago. And he's still my sponsor to this day. And we still wow. talk all the time. But had he not explained that to me and had I felt devastated and said, well, 30 days is not enough. I'm more important than that and walked off. I might not be, sta- I might not be standing here today. But it sounds like your sponsor and I know him. Yeah. And he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful man. He's got a good sponsor, too which is you want a sponsor who's got a sponsor. Yeah. So um, how long were you sober before you picked up your first sponsee? It was actually over four years. And and I remember talking about it with my sponsor, and I, I was never one to rush up to a guy and be like, hey, I'm mm-hmm. going to sponsor you, that type thing. It was always the understanding that, and, and my sponsor taught me this, was that, when God finds the appropriate time, he's going to put someone in your life. Yeah. And it, it, it's cool because the guy I'm sponsoring, you know, mm-hmm. we were friends on Facebook from, you know, sure. working together in the past. And I, I posted something about sobriety or, you uh-huh. know, what I do. And he reached That's out cool. and he, he asked for help. And I was like, let's do it. Like, it, it, it's time. And I just said a little prayer and thank God that for whatever reason the time was right and you know shared my story and gave him the same gift that was very very freely given to me well that's what's cool about sponsorship is we sponsor other people to keep ourselves sober but in the process of doing that we're teaching them how to sponsor other people so it's kind of a win-win no matter what no matter what happens um so you and I have gotten to know each other over the years that you've been sober. I've really enjoyed knowing you and seeing you in meetings. And to me, as time went on, it, it occurred to me that you kind of exude humility. I, I don't mean that in, a, in a, a disingenuous way. I mean that you seem to be pretty calm about your sobriety, but pretty focused on staying sober. And I've noticed that about you. And I've always thought whenever I've seen you in meetings that here's a guy who stands a chance at staying sober a long time if he continues to do the things that he's doing right now. And I can't say that for everyone around your age. So I, I, want, I want to really honor you for your desire and the work that you've put into staying sober uh, this whole time. Sounds to me like you've gotten quite a few gifts out of the deal, huh? Oh, yeah. It yeah, and, and like the biggest gift is yeah. is yet to come. You know, I get to have mm-hmm. a family, a wife, mm-hmm. kids, you know, career, and I get to do all that sober. Mm. And it it blows my mind that, you know, hopefully by the grace of God, and you know, I I know I'm going to stay sober for them to never mm-hmm. see me drink. I remember hearing one of your last interviews where it was uh, mm-hmm. uh, George, and he was like, my kids have never seen me drink. And it's like, I want to be yeah. able to say that as yeah. well. That's an important thing to be able to say. My kids never saw me drink, and uh, my older son is actually older than you are. And uh, it is a great feeling, and one that once it's shared, guys know that it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
because I was scared to be a father. I was I was petrified at the idea of becoming a father because I didn't want to repeat the same mistakes and everything else that my that my dad and and my mom had to muddle through. But it's always different. So whenever anybody tells you this is what marriage is going to be like or this is what having kids is going to be like, you can take what you need from that remark and leave the rest because the reality is what was true for them, some of it might be true for you. But you're going to have your own truths that come up. And that's what's really cool. The fact that you're looking forward to that, I think, is really very optimistic. I would always caution anybody who's that optimistic to just say, yeah, you're sober today. Just remember today. Just remember today. Yeah. But I know I know you're focused on that. So is there anything else that you would want people listening to this to know about sobriety and what it's meant to you? Yeah, I think if God gives you a hint at, you know, you should be in sobriety or in or an AA, just just take it. Don't go down a path where you're going to suffer more consequences if you mm. if you mm. don't. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to wrap things up, Matt. I really have enjoyed talking with you. If I were to rate what I thought your sobriety was, I'd say it's pretty solid and it, it looks that way today. And I hope it will always look that way for you. I hope that, you know, you can be one of those guys who got sober young and, you know, you're 80 years old sitting in a meeting saying, I've been sober for 50 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some young guys around who've been sober since they were teenagers. People like George, who, you know, he's been sober almost 40 years now, got sober at 19. So we get here when we're supposed to get here. And you got here at 26, which is very, very cool. And uh, I just want to say how much I admire you and I respect you and I honor your sobriety and I love you and you're a good man. Yeah, and I appreciate everything you said. And, you know, the, the thing I love about you is seeing you mm -hmm. or, you know, used to see you on, on Sunday, Sunday nights and you're always the first one there mm -hmm. walking in and, you know, greeting everyone. I still don't know how you, yeah. you, you remember everyone's names, but that's just incredible. There's a trick to that, you know, don't you? You know what the trick is? What is it? The, the trick is you forget their names the first three or four times and keep asking them what their name is. And by the third or fourth time, there's a part of you that gets so tired of having to ask a guy his name again that you somehow remember it. So if I'm remembering names, it's by brute force. There's no, I'm not Harry Lorraine where I can go through a phone book and, and remember every single thing. I, but thank you for saying that. And, and, and I always enjoy seeing you. And, and I'm so happy that you were able to do this today and want to thank you for taking the time. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Matt M., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa... Play AA Recovery Interviews podcast, or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>